there needs to be an adult deal here with your customers, right? If you're going to use the data you have on them to create value for yourself, you have to ask how you're creating value for them. I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. Hey everyone, my guest today is Zaid Al-Kassab, the Chief Marketing Officer and Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Channel 4. Zaid was the former CMO of BT Group. He also spent 20 years at Procter & Gamble and in between there had a stint in the startup world as well. It's a really fascinating conversation. I'd encourage people to go you know, listen to what he has to say about how he's approached his role. At Channel 4, we talk about his approach to, to building a culture and capability that can produce very creative work. Also, they have a, a relatively big in-house agency and content studio. And then go look at the work that this setup has produced. I think it's a really interesting model. So we talk about a lot of different things. He's got some great perspective and advice to share for marketers of all levels and all industries. But the two things that we really drill down into are discussing uh, when, how, and why to bring resources in-house versus using external agencies. And then also his experience working in big brands and small brands. And I love his answer to that question. So hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, please let me know what you thought. And uh, on to the show. All right. My guest today, Zaid Al-Kassab, the Chief Marketing Officer of Channel 4. We have a, a great mutual friend, Indeed Aragon, who hooked us up to have a chat. And uh, I really appreciate you making the time coming on the show. How are you today? Pleased to be Pleased to be here, Eric. Nice to uh, nice to be uh, able to chat about these things. Great. So um, we got a couple topics to talk about that you sent over ahead of time, which I love. But I actually wanted to start by reading a bit of a quote from your bio on LinkedIn, if you don't mind, because this I think is it lines be embarrassing. up. No, your bio. <laughs> I will say, you know, um, prepping for this for this interview. I went down of a bit a bit of a rabbit hole. The work that you've done at Channel Four, who you are as a professional, and I, I want to get into all of it. You know, we only have forty minutes, so it's not going to be time enough time to touch on everything. But I was really interested, and I will say, I think you have one of the better written LinkedIn bios. So of course, we'll include that in the show notes, and people should go check it out. But the piece that I wanted to call out was, uh, as you say, I have a passion for innovative approaches that challenge the status quo and improve business results and organizational capabilities. And honestly, I might steal that for the Rival website because that is so much what we're about as well. Innovation that does things differently, but it has to be with an eye on delivering business results, but through people, capabilities, culture, and organizational organizational capabilities, as you put it. So I just love that. And I think that's a fantastic jumping off point for the conversation today. Well, all of those things are important. I mean, not just to me, but I think they're all important to success in the business, in the industries that we're in. Um, I think everything that we do is done through people. We work in fundamentally quite creative industries, whether you think of the more strategic end of creativity, you know, the, the, the business planning end, or whether you think of the executional end of creativity. Um, they're really just people as our only source of capital, right? Um, it's it's not about bricks and mortar, and it's not about 
silicon chips. It's it's mostly about people. So I've always thought that the success is built on the team you build, the capabilities and skills you build in that team, the way they work together, the way in which they understand what they're trying to do. And then the point about business objectives is important to me as well, because if you want to be creative without business objectives, that there is scope for that. You know, go hang your art on a wall in a in a museum. That that's called being creative without business objectives. Um, but that isn't what we are. That's not why we're here. It's not who pays our wages um, in this industry. We're here to achieve some business outcomes. I, I love that those outcomes are creative. I love that they're innovative. I, I love that they're focused on the the consumer or the end customer. Um, but um, they're nevertheless delivered by people and they're about creating some value for a business. Yeah, and that's something I'm passionate about as well, making sure that marketing is tied to a business result at the end of the day. I, I think there's so much of what I would call marketing for the sake of marketing out there, particularly on the creative and the advertising end of the industry. You know, brilliant people, but I think sometimes it can be a little bit disconnected from what we're actually here to do, which is the role of marketing is to drive growth of the business through changing perception and changing behavior. And what I loved in prepping for this conversation looking at some of the recent work that you and the team have done at Channel 4, which of course we'll get into, it's incredibly creative, but it also had a big impact on me. I think differently about the Channel 4 brand. And granted, I watched you know like 12 ads right in a row, but still, I think differently um, about the brand because of the creativity in the advertising that you've done. Um, so... Uh, before we get into actually talking about what you're doing at Channel 4, Zaid, maybe you could just give a quick overview of kind of the your career to date and how you ended up at Channel 4. Well, I, I um, joined Procter & Gamble uh, as a marketer, actually as an intern, uh, when I was only 20 years old um, and probably thought I'd spend six months there, ended up spending 20 years there. Um, doing lots of different jobs in different countries in the world um, and including um, wider sales and general management jobs as well and um, and then ended up um, running the uh, UK and Ireland health and beauty business for Procter & Gamble. Um, it includes famous brands like Gillette and, uh, and Pantene uh, and uh, uh, Max Factor and uh, uh, all, sorts of, uh, all sorts of things like that. And um, and then uh, I went and did a brief uh, stint in a uh, in a startup, an e-commerce business, which nowadays is very easy to describe because it, it was like Airbnb, but it was before uh, uh, we had all heard of Airbnb, um, which was a, a totally um, fantastic experience for me in terms of learning and a total disaster in terms of actually making any money, and uh, uh, eventually sold to. Uh, TripAdvisor. And then I went to be the, the chief brand and marketing officer at BT for the whole group, a huge telco business uh, with lots of different brands, EE and Plusnet and OpenReach and uh, touching everyone's lives in the UK. Uh, and then I came from there to work at Channel 4 as the CMO, which is um, a quite a wide role, um, includes product uh, and includes in-house agencies uh, and I'm also the uh, diversity and inclusion lead uh, for Channel 4 as well. Amazing. And it actually doesn't surprise me to hear that you had 
some kind of GM and commercial roles. Back to what we were talking about before, marketing needs to be tied to business results. It's something I'm passionate about and was lucky enough to have these last six, seven years of my career, more of a GM type role, managing a P&L um, and actually running a business that happened to be in marketing. And it's something that I always recommend to people as they're coming up in their careers in marketing is if you can get that commercial experience, I think it really helps provide such a strong foundation and perspective to then go and do marketing more effectively. Definitely. Great. So we're going to talk about, there's kind of two topics that we're going to focus on today. Your perspective, experience, and kind of advice that you have to share on working in very big brands, but also very small ones. And then also um, discussing in-house versus agency resources. So you mentioned you've got partners, but you also have in-house resources as well. So I'm excited to get into that, but I do want to touch on some of the work that you've done recently. So Channel 4 recently just won Brand of the Year from Marketing Society and looking at some of the work that you and the team have done, it you know it's pretty obvious as to why. I looked at, and we'll include all these in the show notes, uh, the work that that you did for the Paralympics, I think is is really impactful. I loved the big, beautiful weirdos campaign. And then there's other things that uh, maybe aren't as much marketing, but it sounds like you're probably involved in as well, heading up a lot of the DNI initiatives, the Black to Front project. So maybe we could just start by talking about, you know, if you look back on, you've been there for two and a half years or going on two and a half years. I'm curious how you created an ecosystem, the team, the culture, the capabilities, the partners to be able to produce this creative work. Because to what you said in the beginning, and obviously knowing the scale of Channel 4 and the team you have, you know, you're not the one, or likely you're not the one actually coming up with the ideas. It's the team that you've created. So how did you build a department, a function, a marketing machine that's able to do what, in my opinion, is such creative and impactful work? Well, thank you. I'm glad you like it, Eric. Um, uh, I should start by saying the conditions you start with at Channel 4 are favorable right? because um, people may not be familiar, but Channel 4 was set up to be a broadcaster who would champion uh, marginalized or unheard voices and try to drive social change. And therefore, we start with a, a context which is is helpful to doing uh, more breakthrough creative work. I mean, secondly, we're also, of course, um, a broadcaster and creator, creator of content. And that means creativity is at the heart of what we do. Um, so it is an environment that attracts those people and where creativity is cherished and believed in uh, and risk-taking is encouraged. So those are all really good uh, conditions. If you like, the agar plate on which things grow is a really uh, healthy little ecosystem. In terms of what, what we do uh, as a business to try and achieve that, I don't think it's different from my advice to anyone in any business or from the way I've operated in, in previous businesses, you know, small startups or, or huge uh, FTSE corporations, which is the role of the marketing department. I, I say marketing in the widest sense, right? Everything we do about the strategy and the brands and the customer understanding and the insight, not, not, not just making ads. But the role of the marketing department is to understand the business objectives, understand who should be the right target audience and customer or consumer for those objectives, and know them so well 
that you can uh, package up what you're doing in a way that is brilliantly appealing to them. Right? That, that, that is actually quite simple and it's the same everywhere you go. The cultural conditions you need to add to that, if you genuinely want a breakthrough creative work that drives social change or makes people act completely differently or just from a purely commercial point of view that, that, that makes people buy your product is, is probably the hardest bit because there's no easy template for that. That's creating conditions where people are comfortable trying and failing, uh, conditions where um, that sort of risk-taking is, is cherished and rewarded and where people genuinely believe that creativity leads to fantastic business results. Now, personally, I think there's plenty of data on the table that says creative, innovative approaches lead to great business results. But um, I also know it's very tempting, especially in larger companies, to be incredibly risk-averse. Um, and, um, and, and that cultural uh, journey, those cultural conditions are probably harder to achieve than the, than the, um, than the original um, objective might make them seem. And is it, um, or how much of a challenge is it, has it been for you to kind of sell through more of these creative, innovative approaches? I'm not, I don't actually, it'd be a question, you know, how much of a advancement in creativity did you bring with the work that you've done versus what Channel 4 did before? And was it tricky to get the board or the C-suite or the stakeholders internally involved in putting things out that, you know, were maybe a little bit different? Well, as you said at the beginning, quite rightly, I'm not the ideas guy. I, I'm not the creative and I don't try to be. I mean, it's a, a, a key principle for me to let the people who um, you have hired to do that work do it without your interference. Uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to smooth the way and create the right conditions and I'm trying to deliver um, clear objectives and briefs so that they know what the business is trying to achieve. Um, and I think if you do that, it's not hard in any organization to get support because if people believe that the marketing team or the creative people in the business, understand the objectives of the business and are doing work to genuinely deliver on them, then a lot of the fear uh, disappears and they're a lot more welcoming of it. And of course, the work <laughs> the work is a lot more on point, so it's easier to, it's easier to buy. Look, I, I, I came into Channel 4, which is a creative business with a strong history of risk-taking and innovation and creativity. So I don't claim to be responsible for that. But you have to marry that to the business objectives and ensure that people continue to support it because they know it's going to deliver. Yeah. What I like about that is oftentimes in this type of conversation, how do you sell through a big idea? How do you sell through a focus on an investment in brands and not just short-term commercial results, anything like that? It's often focused on, okay, you've got the idea already. How do you then get people on board and sell it through? But what you touched on with, if people internally see and understand that the creative and marketing teams are grounded in the business objectives at the beginning, then there's more buy-in and more partnership when those ideas do come up. So I really like that. And I think that's a perspective that's not talked about enough. Um, the other question it's interesting, I wanted to- Eric, when, yeah, when um, sometimes uh, marketers early in their careers say, I'd, I'd really like to do a job like yours one day, You know, what's your advice? How do you get there? And I most usually often, you have to be curious and that curiosity has to be about the other people in your business, right? <laughs> it has to be 
what will make the finance director think that it's worth investing in marketing? What will make the operations director feel that I'm doing a good job that supports what they're into? Well, you know, what will make the HR director think that the marketing we do makes the staff feel proud of working here? That those are the stakeholders, you know, internally and uh, thinking about them and connecting to the business with what you're trying to achieve is the key. Not, 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 not to the creativity itself, right? But if you want to one day run or manage one of those businesses, you've, you've got to understand how it fits together. Yep. I love that. I mean, so much of it, you know, as people get more and more senior in their career, really regardless of what they're doing, but certainly if they're aiming for a CMO or a C-suite position, so much of that is the people. It's everything that we've been talking about from the very beginning in terms of organizational capabilities to the ecosystem that you've set up internally to how you think about your role and to this how you really stay curious with the people and understand what matters to them about what you can do. So much of those roles are people roles. You know, you're a marketer, you're responsible for the marketing, but really a lot of the job of a CMO is the is the people side of it in order to be able to do the job that you do want to do. Um, I'd love to hear about, you know, we talked about business results and you mentioned briefly, and obviously it's true, there's a ton of data and research out there about how creativity can drive business results. But for channel four, can you talk a little bit about how you do that? Like what the measurement or attribution or model is that you use to show that the work you're doing is or isn't driving results? Well, it's a, it's a difficult question when you're selling a creative product, which varies all the time because a lot of the traditional methodologies, you know, uh, econometrics and so on have all sorts of uh, unknown variables in there because um, one show is not exactly the same as a, in terms of appeal or in terms of quality as another. Um, but we do our best. We use a, we use a, a, a multi-touch attribution model to try and understand the effectiveness of what we're doing. Um, uh, we do uh, inevitably um, a, a lot of uh, research and insight into into the different things we're doing. We um, are lucky that you know now that we're not just a TV broadcaster, but we're also um, a, a VOD service. Uh, we have some first party data that allows us to understand the effectiveness of of, of what we're doing, and not not every business have that, has that privilege, but that often can help you if you if you interrogate first party data if you've got it um so there are a variety of ways but you know there will always be a a marrying of science and art in good marketing i don't honestly believe that attempts to uh, manage marketing by algorithm will ever be entirely successful because uh, you're talking to real people and people's views you know, change really regularly and uh, people's likes and moods um, swing one way or another. So um, I don't I don't think it'll ever be a case of paint by numbers. Yep. Yeah. And obviously there's the short term, long term dynamic to it as well. A big part of why you have marketing is to drive the long term growth of the business, which if you're only tracking on a attribution window or 90 day quarterly results, you're missing out on all of the long term growth that it can deliver, especially on the brand side. Q 
Here at Rival, we've partnered with Attest, a powerful consumer research platform, to start producing our own proprietary research on challenger marketing trends. You'll hear more about that soon. But each week, we're going to highlight a report from Attest that adds context to each episode and guests that we have on. So for today's conversation with Zaid, we're highlighting the UK media consumption report that Attest put out relatively recently. And in that report, it highlights that TV viewing is returning to pre-lockdown levels. In 2020, 60% of people reported watching more than three hours of live TV each day. Today, that's only 43%. To find out more from this report, head on over to askatest.com. Here, you can also run a free survey to access 110 million consumers in 49 markets to remove the guesswork from your business growth. So um, in terms of the two topics that we said we would dig into today, so in-house versus agency resources and working on big brands versus small ones, maybe we start just because we're kind of deep in talking about channel four right now, the in-house versus agency resources conversation. Um, so I don't know where you want to start, but the floor is yours. Well, we let me tell you what we have at channel four. We have two um, pieces of the team, which some might call uh, in-house agencies. We have um, uh, a uh, full service um, uh, creative agency, a bit like, what people might call an ad agency in the world outside, um, which um, which creates our our, our marketing campaigns, uh, and we have, uh, and that's called Full Creative. Um, and how big is that roughly? Uh, it's probably about fifty to sixty people. Okay. Um, a good size. It's, yeah. it's it's been around for a while. It's it's like a mid size agency. It is. Um, a very much awarded and applauded um, agency that you know stands toe to toe with big independent um, um, agencies in the real world, um, and they create um, fantastic campaigns like the, like the Paralympics one you referenced earlier. The campaigns for all our big shows, our brand work that you talked about, um, uh, altogether different as a, as, a, as, a, as a concept which encapsulates Channel Four, uh, and then we have a much newer. Um, digital content agency called Four Studio. It's um, it's not even two years old yet. Um, we set it up after I after I joined, and that business um, does uh, does three different things. It um, it offers a, a a commercial revenue source for us because we publish fantastic content on our social pages and uh, and can make money. From doing so, um, uh, we also offer our uh, our fantastic reach with a with a number one uh, social channels for reach amongst sixteen to thirty four year olds in the UK. So that's pretty big, and uh, we offer that reach to advertising partners um, who we will co create uh, uh, branded entertainment with uh, if they so wish, or, 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 or sponsorship or use for advertising. So there's a commercial function. There's a strong pure marketing function there by using those channels and creating content there we can um, get people involved in the brand and push them back to watching on all four our VOD service or on the television um, so there's a secondly a very strong marketing and then thirdly there's a sort of creative aspect to that because um, that team also commissions and and creates content itself in new areas so that we're learning about new things um, and trying things out in the digital space that aren't necessarily of the scale or cost of TV broadcasting. 
Um, so we, we, we achieve three things through that agency. So that's akin to a digital content agency in the world outside. And was that in process when you joined or was that a concept that you brought in and started? Uh, it, it was a it was a, a, a glint in someone's eye that uh, maybe that was an idea we should do. Um, but the, the the first hire in that team was in, I think, October 2016. I hired them, you know, as soon as I got into Channel 4. Uh, and that team is now, uh, it's now closing in on about 80 people. So um, it's a wow. substantial social and digital content agency in its own right and as i say the biggest the biggest uh, reach in the uk for young people so you know it's a it's a successful business in its own right and why set up a separate social digital content agency to the creative one that already existed well in all honesty just so that we could focus and not not defocus the uh, the the full creative team the full creative team make um uh, more than 600 you know, ads that appear on the telly each year and they do major campaigns pretty much every month like the Paralympics. Uh, and we thought that uh, what was right to try and set up a startup that we we didn't know was going to work, we, 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 you know, it was just an idea, was to allow it to have a little bit of focus and just live separately while it was in startup mode. And it's still in sort of high growth and high learning mode. So, you know, that's, 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 um, you know, a successful little project while we're still delivering the big stuff that makes us famous through yep. Fort Creative. Is that social, oh, sorry, what was it called? Was it Studio 4? For? For, stu- for Studio. For, for Studio. Is that a profit center now or is it still a cost center, even if it is bringing in some revenue? Well, I, I won't give you the, the 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 details of it, but it it does yeah. it does turn a profit on its commercial business. But we use that to reinvest in the other things that I talked about in great marketing and, and so the, the 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 it's in in the in the overall scale of Channel Four, it's a relatively small thing. But in the scope of reaching young people on social, it's really important to us. So it's not its primary objective is not to be a profit center. It's to allow our brand to have reach and to point people back to the other areas of our business. And we do make money there. Yeah, this is something I'm very passionate about um, and was a lot of what I did in my last role at 11FS because I do think there's a, well, taking a step back, the way that I think about this type of thing and where I think there's a huge opportunity just in modern marketing in general is this concept of building a media company around what you stand for. So you as a media company already, maybe it was a more natural extension, but for example, 11FS, the fintech consulting firm that I was at before I founded Rival, you know, fintech consulting, it's building digital banking propositions. And yet, and before I got there, but of course, part of my role as CMO was to kind of operationalize and scale that function, head a media team and produce content. And um, I think there's a huge opportunity if you do it well, because if you're building a media company, you're competing against other media companies. It's not just the marketing function of a consulting firm anymore. So you need to be able to compete eyeball for eyeball, listener for listener, website visitor to website visitor with all of the other content out there. But if you do it well, there's an opportunity to turn a chunk of your marketing function into a profit center or at least a revenue line that you can then reinvest back in. Because anytime that you're competing against another business where your primary objective is not their primary objective, they're trying to turn a profit as a media business. You're trying to drive the growth of your business, but you can find profit along the way. I think it makes it even more competitive. So I think I actually don't know too many examples of that 
of businesses really doing that at scale. So this is really interesting to me to learn that that's what you're doing. Um, do you know, I mean, first of all, we'd be curious in your, like, I feel like it's a very similar thing. I don't know if that's how you think about it, but we'd be curious in your response to what I said. And do you know many other businesses that are doing something like this at that scale? I guess this touches on the whole macro in-house versus inter- uh, versus external agency resource conversation. Well, I think, uh, as you rightly said, it's much more natural for us because we're a broadcaster. So to uh, have a business that connects with people in different channels uh, is perfectly normal for us. Uh, and um, it, it's... Uh, it's a it's a small step to say if people are interested in us reaching them in other ways, can we monetize that? And and I think there are plenty of businesses around that have taken that small step and said, look, I have a I have a captive audience here, and you know I might as well think about monetizing that audience, even if it's not your core business. For us, it's much closer to being our core business, right? Showing content and people paying for it is kind of what we are. Um, uh, but I do think there's a lot of businesses out there that have fantastic reach, fantastic first-party data, and haven't yet thought about how that could be useful from a, uh, a media point of view. Um, so, um, you know, big utilities, for example, you know, have that huge amounts of first-party data, amazing reach, everyone's email address, and, you know, haven't necessarily thought about how that can be used in the context of reaching people and monetizing and uh, and providing services in other ways. Yeah. Um, so I think there's scope for, I think there's scope for that. I think it's a really interesting thing and I think it'll happen more and more. Yeah, and I think that's a a part of why I really believe in this model because you know, I think it would work even if you go back 5 years, but certainly in kind of a post or increasingly post cookie post third party data world where the role of first party data management and application becomes even more and more important that perspective of thinking like a media company with the audience that you own and have to continuously add value to in order to keep them coming back and keep them engaged and have the opportunity to monetize them whether it's for the bottom line of your core business or as a media business i think that's another reason why I think there's an opportunity for for certain types of businesses to do this. And and I think the core to that is for people to remember that there needs to be an adult deal here with your customers, right? If you're going to use the data you have on them to create value for yourself, you have to ask how you're creating value for them. Um, And uh, as long as you are clear on that deal, and by the way, in my opinion, as long as you're completely transparent about it with your customers, which we are, then um, then they can choose to opt into that and, uh, because they like the value you are providing and are happy with the exchange. That's the important thing in the modern world. Uh, I think that people who don't get that and who try to extract that value without offering value in return will eventually wither and die and probably come a cropper through legal means, but eventually the consumers will leave anyway. Yep. Um, so I, you know, we only got about ten minutes left. I want to talk about the big brands versus small brands conversation, but just to kind of wrap up in-house versus agency, we've obviously touched on a lot. If you have to kind of sum up your experience and perspective, obviously it's tough to give advice to every marketer because it totally depends on the business and the size and the industry and the talent and the budget and all that stuff. But how would you recommend people thinking about whether or not they should be investing more in in-house or more in agency? Or what's your kind of um, uh, what's your kind of headline of where you think this is going and what you think marketers now should be thinking about? 
Great question. Well, firstly, I don't have a bias. I, I, I might have two uh, sort of reasonably large in-house agencies, but that doesn't mean I'm a believer that everyone should in-house. Uh, and I've worked in businesses where I would never have done that and worked in businesses where I have done that. Um, and that is because, as you rightly said in the question, it depends on the situation of the business. The most important piece of advice is uh, do not enter into in-housing because you think it's a brilliant cost saving. That is entirely the wrong reason for doing it. Uh, and eventually that will find you out and uh, you will either discover it's not a cost saving as you thought, or you'll discover that you've just destroyed the effectiveness of your marketing. Uh, you've, you, you need to examine what business needs are and whether in-housing is a better solution than traditional agency solutions. Um, now, in the case of being a broadcaster whose schedules can change you know, uh, pretty quickly and who often have things that we turn around from brief to being on air in 48 hours, um, it's pretty helpful to have in-house agencies. <laughs> we can make things really quickly and we can get them on air and we can react to the news or to the times um, and that's hugely helpful. And having that externally would be really problematic. I mean, we'd have barely got through briefing before it needed to to, to be on air. Um, so we have really good reasons for, um, for in-housing at Channel 4. But many businesses don't have compelling reasons and they enter into this thinking it's some sort of brilliant cost-saving idea. And what happens is they've they've forgotten to think holistically about what happens when you're in-house. When you're in-house, you have to pick who those people are and they have to permanently work on only one brand doing only one thing. The beauty of the agency world is that people work on many different brands and lots of different briefs and they do many different things. And that increases their expertise and uh, keeps them fresh in what's going on in the marketplace and allows them to be inspired by things happening in other industries. And you lose all of that when you're in-house because you have people who only work in your industry, only on your brand all the time doing the same sort of stuff. So it is not a, it's not a panacea. It's not a, it's not a magic bullet to, um, to, to, to solve all your creative woes or to save a lot of money. It's something that needs to be entered into for strategic reasons because it fits with your business model. I, I do think what you touched on of how quickly you can react and respond, and again, maybe that's something that is more obvious to be a priority for a business like yours than others, but I really think that is one of the biggest reasons or one of the biggest opportunities, if it does make sense to in-house anything, really, creativity, paid media, really any discipline, is just the ability to move faster and react quicker. Speed and agility are such important conversations. You know, where we sit in our businesses, we're often working with bigger companies that kind of want to adopt more of the challenger startup marketing models and mindsets. And a big part of that is speed, just being able to move quicker. And then the other piece that I touch on, um, and I think to what we were talking about before, this definitely loops in, is just you get smarter faster having people in-house. Those feedback loops, whether it's literally looking at the data of how things are performing or just the fact that you have a team that's part of yours that is seeing this stuff, that's learning what works and what doesn't, the accumulation of insight and intelligence, I think is a big advantage as well. Great. So let's switch gears. Got a few more minutes, but let's touch on your perspective of having worked in big brands, big businesses like Channel 4, BT, and also small ones, your experience in the startup world. So um, yeah, what's your what's your kind of take on that? What do you have to share? 
Well, yeah, look, I, I, I worked when I was at Procter & Gamble, on a, which is a huge organization, on brands that were a uh, billion dollars around the world and brands that were, you know, uh, well under a um, million dollars measured in hundreds of thousands of dollars. So really very different scale businesses in the portfolio. Uh, and I've worked in a startup that was starting with almost nothing and in one of the biggest FTSE 100 companies in the UK. So, you know, I've seen all ends of the scale. Um, and I'm not saying there aren't differences, but I am saying the way you should approach your job as a, as a marketer and the way you should think about developing your brands uh, should not change because the, um, the, the rules of what works are exactly the same. They are, you better understand what the business objectives are, otherwise you're not going to be successful. And you better really understand your customer or consumer. Um, be excellent at extracting the insight into what is motivating them in your uh, industry or product category. Um, and then you need to engage them wherever they are receptive in lots of different channels with consistent messaging um, and with execution that is engaging and that's it that's all there is to it and I could say those words whether you're a startup or whether you're uh, one of the biggest companies in the world um, there is no difference those are the rules of success in marketing and they don't change uh, and I often find it amusing when people say oh no, this is a digital world all the rules of marketing have changed none of the rules of marketing have changed in a digital world only the method by which we reach people has changed, which was is one little piece somewhere near the end of the puzzle. Um, um, now, of course, there are differences. You mentioned speed and agility. And, you know, with the West best will in the world, no large company is as agile or able to be as agile or able to move as fast as a small challenger. And small challenger brands are, 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 are have to be good at that because that is one of the few competitive advantages they have. The other competitive advantage that small challenger brands have is a lack of risk. Because if you're small, you're not risking much, right? You have a, a really asymmetric approach to risk, right? There's a, 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 a huge upside and a relatively small downside. And it allows you to do things that you wouldn't do in a large established business. And when you're a challenger brand, I'm going to use the example of a, of a hair product brand that um, that I uh, managed once called um, Aussie. It's a shampoo and conditioner brand. Uh, it was a very small business and it was up against, you know, great big Goliaths like L'Oreal um, who own that business area. Unilever, they're also huge in that area. And on Aussie, which was a relatively low risk thing for us, uh, we were able to be much more provocative than other brands would be. We were able to um, cycle through products much faster than others, some of which failed and we just, you know, stopped making them and took them off the shelves, um, which big established businesses would never do because the volumes would be crippling to them. Um, we were able to change things when we noticed they weren't working. We were able to make advertising that others wouldn't make. Um, and we took that little business to market leadership in the UK above L'Oreal, right? And we kept that model even as it grew. And then, of course, at some point, you start to become a little more stuck in the bureaucracy of it being large and decisions needing to go up three levels and everyone being interested in it and the budgets being huge and you don't want to risk them. But the journey uh, there was fantastic because we used all the principles I've said, but we used them in a, just in a fast and, and innovative way.
do you have any advice? And I sigh before I ask this question because I, th- I think it's it's in almost inherently impossible to combine both those things. But that is really what almost any business should be looking for. You want the scale and the credibility of being an incumbent, let's say, or let's uh, being a market leader, being a big business and a big brand. But you want the speed and the agility and the ability to be provocative and take risks of being a small business and a startup. Do you have any advice uh, for how people should try to combine those things? I guess particularly, obviously, if you're small, you just want to get to scale. But for the bigger businesses that do want to kind of think and act and market more like challengers, any advice on how to do that besides trying to take a small brand that can take those risks and that can move faster? Well, obviously, on that sort of quadrant that you've sort of metaphorically uh, drawn uh, everyone would like to be in the you know big and fast and nimble quadrant, um, uh, and we all know that that's incredibly difficult. And I, I, I don't think we should kid ourselves. Uh, you know, with size comes uh, reduction in speed and agility. It just does. There's lots of people in the mix, and they all have to agree or be talked to. And the budgets are bigger, and they need more sign off, and all of those things. Um, so it's always going to be difficult. I think the key to it is an organization that is incredibly clear on the objectives, where everyone knows exactly what role they play, where there's a very small number of measures of what you're trying to deliver. And at least what that does is is it it, 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 it aggregates all the power of those different people and their different jobs into trying to achieve the same thing. And that creates some hope that you will be fast enough to get things done. Um, it is not easy and there's no uh, easy solution to that. But, but, but it's something in the clarity of everyone together on the small numbers of things you're trying to achieve. Clarity and alignment to tie this all back to where we started. It's about the people. It's about the organizational capabilities. And that comes from what I call clarity and alignment. Um, I think that's the role of leadership, of good leadership at the end of the day. So Zaid, I know that we're up on time. I, we didn't get a chance to talk about the DNI portion of your role, um, so maybe we'll need to do a follow up on that one. But I did want to at least ask. Obviously, you're you're owning and and helping to further the DNI agenda at Channel Four, but I know you're also involved in other organizations um, as represented by your fantastic mustache for November right now. Um, any any organizations out there or anything that you want to call out to people? Maybe people who want to be getting more involved in kind of the DNI side of this industry. What, what kind of advice or organizations would you highlight to folks? Well, I, I think that um, uh, this is a topic where people do better if they follow their own passion points. And, and, and that means there are, you know, literally thousands of places you could go, right? I, I wouldn't start by trying to aggregate everything that's in the whole space of diversity and inclusion and become an expert on it. I would think is your is your passion trying to improve inclusivity for uh, disabled people in, in 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 your company, and where do you go to get help on that? Is your passion trying to campaign for rights for uh, um, uh, for uh, uh, ethnically diverse uh, uh, um, communities? Uh, where do you go to do that? Is is your personal passion? Uh, that you want to champion uh, LGBTQ um, issues, um, where do you go for that? Because my learning from trying to um, muddle my way through the whole uh, the whole DNI space is 
it is um, by its nature hugely complex because it's about the complexities and intersectionalities in each of every one of us on the planet. Um, and the chance of you becoming an expert on how to do it is very close to zero. But we all have our own uh, experiences and we all have our own passions. And what this world needs is a bunch of passionate individuals um, trying to further the areas that they uh, are familiar with. And that's probably the key to success because people are going to be better at this if they're operating in the space that they're familiar with and understand well, not by trying to dabble in areas that they haven't got their own experience of. So that's my sort of watchword for it. Um, so I, I, I call upon people to think about their own passion and start there. And maybe one day they'll start to learn about other areas too. I think that could be applied to a lot of things in life, not just contributing to DNI or a cause that you care about. But I think that's a great place to leave it. I'm going to let you run to catch your train. Thank you so much for joining us. If people want to connect with you or find out more about the work you're doing at Channel 4, maybe apply for a role at an in-house agency or content studio, uh, where should they go? Yeah, so on the Channel 4 .co.uk uh, website, uh, they will find our careers page and we always post all our jobs on there. So it's a one-stop shop, really easy to find. Amazing. Thank you so much for doing this. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, Eric. It's a pleasure. All right. On today's edition of Organizations That We Sponsor, I'm really excited to be here with Jeff from 1% for the Planet. So we are signing up to become a member. We'll be involved starting from next year, but I will let him introduce what 1% for the Planet is, why it exists, and the great work that they're up to. So Jeff, thanks for joining us. Please tell us a little bit about 1% for the Planet. Yeah, thanks for having me on here, Eric. Uh, really excited. So 1% for the Planet is a global organization. We're a nonprofit um, consisting of over 10,000 community members being businesses, nonprofits, and individuals. And we exist to ensure that our planet and future generations thrive. Um, so we inspire those businesses and individuals to support environmental nonprofits through membership and everyday actions. Um, so to date, um, we've driven over $300 million to our environmental nonprofit partners. And um, yeah, that's um, you know really what what we do. Amazing. And so, for people that want to get involved, um, obviously they can you know we'll include it in the show notes, the website, and all that stuff. But what is what does involvement typically look like if someone wants to contribute more or do more on this front? Yeah. So our our two main models is business membership and individual membership. So for anyone running a business, from you know a, a small business, um, a storefront to you know, larger companies um, can always check out our website and fill out our joint form just for initial conversation with myself or a team member. And um, that consists of you know, making an annual commitment to donating 1% of your total sales to environmental nonprofits on an annual basis. Um, and then through our individual membership program, um, individuals who you know, may not um, you know, be, own a business or you know, their company is interested in membership, can still contribute through that individual model where um, volunteer time can make up the entirety of that 1% or you can commit to donating 1% of your personal income to environmental nonprofits. And you know, we host events um, regionally and globally, virtually and otherwise. 
Uh, so there's always ways to you know connect with our community, whether or not you want to join as a member. Uh, but we're always happy to engage and, and chat with anyone who's interested in you know doing more for our planet. Amazing, and I think that's the thing for me and for us here at Rival is you know we're not a massive organization, and you don't have to be one or you don't have to be a high net worth individual to just get involved and start doing something. Because if we all do our part, if we all do our one percent, then it really adds up. All right. So Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. We'll include a link to 1% for the planet in the show notes and really hope that some people will hear this and check it out and hopefully get involved. So appreciate you making the time and appreciate everything you do. Yeah. Thanks so much, Eric. And thanks for your, for your membership. Um, yeah. Pleasure chatting and, and looking forward to seeing your company as it grows and you know what, what you can do within, within our community. So thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks, man. All right. I'll see you later. All right. Bye. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week. 